for being on the show and thanks for spending some time with us today. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, we've been excited to have you on the show. And I think you mentioned recently to me that you are in Florida, which couldn't be more opposite than us here in the Pacific Northwest, Washington State. How's Florida life these days? Well, I appreciate you getting up so early for this. <laughs> <laughs> Life's good, man. Just had some hurricanes roll through, but to be expected, right? It's a seasonal thing. So yeah, yeah. Do, doing well, though. Absolutely. Were you all affected much by that? We weren't. So we're, we're pretty central. So usually, you know, if something's coming in at a category three, by the time it hits us, it's either a one or a tropical storm. So uh, usually not a lot of damage here. Okay. That's yeah. good. Have you been in Florida for a while now, or is that kind of home base for you? You know, it's funny. I've been back and forth between Colorado and Florida my whole life. Um, okay. Came out to Florida originally when I was in high school still, helped my parents launch a, a business out here. Went back to Colorado for many years, did oil and gas work and different things, came back to Florida again. So permanently since 2017, we've been out here in central Florida. That's awesome. awesome. Well, and we're going to get into your uh, your backstory a little bit here and, and just kind of what got you going with real estate and investing. And, you know, I, I know you to be a teacher and a coach at heart. So excited to hear some wisdom that you want to impart to our listeners. But let's let's actually talk a little bit today. You're in Florida. What's a this might be a dangerous question, but what's a day in the life look like for you these days? <laughs> That's funny. I've been asked that, that a lot. So, you know, I don't really have a schedule. I, it's not like this Monday through Friday, nine to five kind of thing. I um, I put my calendar out there for the world, anyone who wants to connect and learn more, take a deeper dive. And I kind of dictate my schedule based off that. Hmm. You know, if there's days I know ahead of time I'm going to need off for vacation or travel, I, I block out those dates. And and that's really it, man. So I'm, I'm having calls with investors interested in, you know, Ashcroft Capital stuff. I've, I'm getting calls from people that hear me on podcasts that just want to learn more about passive income and financial independence. And, um, you know, I do a lot of work behind the scenes on building presentations and slide decks, and I do a lot of training events in person. And so I'm always kind of traveling around and, and doing some of those national conferences too. Yeah, no, and I've seen you on some of those conferences. I think you, you also, you're pretty active on LinkedIn. You do a lot of coaching and webinars and different things like that. And so I, I know you're super busy and I'm excited to hear more about kind of your why and what keeps you going because you achieved financial freedom uh, as we would all define it quite a while ago. But let's go back even further than that. Let's hear kind of the beginning of your story. You mentioned the Colorado, you mentioned the Florida. So take us back to the early years and maybe either career or family life. And you know, what what got you on this path and trajectory? Yeah, it's an interesting story, actually, because I was out here in Florida in college. And when I graduated, I I only wanted to do two years because I wasn't sure that college really was for me. So I'm like, let me do two years. I'll get an associate's and then I'll kind of see, you know, what's up at that point. And this was at a time where like music was my driving point in the in the beginning. So I was a singer. I was a drummer. I was in bands. I was going to school for recording and I wanted to do, you know, sound and audio and I wanted to tour with bands. That was just kind of where my mind was at. So I got this two-year degree. I went up to New York City. I did a little bit of off-Broadway stuff, and I started kind of getting my foot in the door that direction. But I quickly realized that, man, it's a lot like working in Hollywood. I mean, in most cases, you're going to have to start as a grunt worker at the bottom. You're not going to be on tour. You're not going to be doing anything exciting. You're going to be repairing light bulbs. You're going to be cleaning floors. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I I want to be an investor. And the reason I thought that was because I had read some of those books early on, the Robert Kiyosaki books and different, you know, finance books. And I always had that in the back of my mind that real estate was something I wanted to get into and, you know, passive income. I was just starting to understand the meaning of that stuff. So long story short, I went to Colorado uh, where I was raised and I pulled the plug on that degree and the whole music scene. And I said, you know what, what I need to do is make some money. And so I went into the oil and gas industry because it didn't require any special skill sets or any specific degrees. And, you know, yes, I had to start as a grunt worker, but the difference was I could make a six-figure salary in my first year instead of maybe $30,000 and working up from that point. So I did that. 
with the uh, you know goal of being extremely frugal and saving a lot of money, like basically pretending like I never left college, mm-hmm. having roommates, eating ramen noodles, rice and beans, you name it. <laughs> and so I put all those that that savings into single family real estate because at that point I didn't know of anything else that existed. I thought if you're going to get in real estate, you start with a single family home. You move up to a duplex, you move up to a four unit, you move up to an eight unit. Like That was just my mindset. So I did flips, vacation rentals, all kinds of single family, and eventually pivoted into you know these passive syndications and being a limited partner and things like that. As, as that really started to resonate years later, I was running into more people that were much more sophisticated than I was and uh, kind of just took a different path. And then from there, wanted to give back to others and say, look, man, you know, I'm not the smartest guy by a long shot, and you know I didn't start from from any kind of money. I just saved and I invested, and and I got there. So that's been my mission: is to help people try to see that vision through their own lens, mm. and you know, using their highest and best potential. That's awesome. That frugality is uh, pretty rare, I think, for most young uh, kind of college age people, especially when you start making that six-figure salary, um, come across uh, most people that are feeling good at that point and start to spend like crazy. And so where did that discipline of frugality, where do you think that was cultivated for you? Is that something that you saw growing up or just something that through reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you knew that you needed to put a lot of money away? Yeah, it's a good question. I was fortunate in that regard. So my parents split when I was five years old when we came to Colorado and both very fiercely um, independent and very frugal minded. So I got kind of two versions of frugality. But being brought up as a kid, I was just surrounded by that concept. So I was taught all the use coupons, buy the off brand, don't buy things you don't need, never go into debt, you know, get the the cheapest gas in town, you know, whatever. And, you know, but at a certain point, and that's all great. And I'm so grateful for that. But at a certain point, I realized that even if you take that traditional route, you go to school, you get the job, you make 100k a year, there's only so much potential to being frugal, right? Because you got to pay your tax, you got to have somewhere to live, you got to have food, you got to have, you know, insurance and miscellaneous. And by the by the end of it, even if you're extremely disciplined, you might be saving what, you know, three or four K a month or something like that in that kind mm-hmm. of scenario. So I thought, you know, that's really not what builds financial freedom and independence. You know, if you're really looking for an abundant life, frugality only gets you so far. So that's where the wheels started shifting to what about investing and what about passive income and what about you know, owning businesses, there, there's no limit to how much income you can make, but there is a limit to how much you can save. For sure. That's a helpful point as far as just recognizing uh, the floor on frugality versus the ceiling when it comes to investments and your earning potential. And that there is uh, a point where, um, you really can't, your essentials to life are going to be your essentials. There's some things that you can't strip away, um, but realizing that you kind of have an unlimited earning potential if you're smart with how you invest. Would you tell us a bit about your first real estate deal? What that first uh, single family, was it a flip or a house hack or what did you do on that first one? Yeah, it's a funny story. I was just telling my nephews because they're they're getting to be that age, you know, where I was when I got into real estate. So I'm I'm trying to kind of you know push the bug onto them a little bit. And I was nice. like, man, if I only knew, you know, what I know now when I was your age, you know, like I didn't know, for example, that a FHA loan was was a thing. I had no idea oh, what that yeah. was. So I was under the mentality that if I'm going to buy a piece of property, I need twenty percent down. And so that's what I did, you know. So <laughs> this was two thousand nine. Uh, prices came down. They, they hadn't bottomed, by the way. A lot of people think I had this perfect timing. I certainly didn't. But this house I was looking at had gone down roughly 40% from its previous sale price. Wow. And it was in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. And I picked it up for $95,000. I had negotiated that from, I think, 103 was their listing price. And then I put 20% down. So basically 20 grand at that point, the government was giving out a $8,000 first-time homebuyer credit that you didn't have to pay back, so that helped offset you know, those costs to renovate. And I got a roommate 
And then, you know, I lived there a while, fully furnished place. Then I had two roommates and I moved out. And I just made that my first full-time rental. And about two, two and a half years after that, I sold it and, you know, made, I don't remember, like a 30-some percent return. And so that kind of, all of those things combined really got the wheels turning. This idea that, you know, a roommate's going to hand me a check every month and I didn't have to work for that. That's my my introduction to cash flow. You know, a 30% return was, was so much money to me at that time. So... Mm-hmm. That's basically, you know, how that uh, how how it all began. So, Travis, one thing that you mentioned is you had gone back with your uh, folks to help them start a business. So, curious, you know, early years were they entrepreneurial? Were they real estate investors? What is what, what, what's some of that background? Yeah, good point. So, my mom and my stepdad have always been in the aviation industry. They're retired now, but this was kind of their last stint. They had a uh, FBO, which stands for fixed based operations. They just worked on small aviation planes and they moved to like a small neighborhood with like a runway in it. It's a little fly in neighborhood. And that was their shop. So, yeah, they've been entrepreneurs. I wouldn't say, well, definitely not their whole life, but in the latter years, they certainly were. I got a lot of inspiration from there. It had um, aunts and uncles that were entrepreneurs, but really that was that was the extent of it. Nobody was into real estate. Nobody was really of the investor mindset. It was all frugality. Mm-hmm. You know, how much can you make? Work for yourself for a little, you know, peace of mind and flexibility, and then how much can you save? Yeah. <laughs> As you started getting into real estate, like around '09, uh, um, did you have naysayers within your? family or, or friend group that uh, that either didn't believe in the asset or discouraged you from doing so? Yeah. So you got to think about the mindset of someone who A, is not an investor and B, is a homeowner and then C, just went through the Great Recession, right? Mm-hmm. So what is their mindset? This is crappy. Why, why did I buy a house, right? I'm underwater. This is the worst investment I've ever made. Why, you know, everyone really told me to rent when I would ask them, should I buy, should I rent? And, and you got to remember too, at this particular timing that I was looking at homes, the market was still falling. So granted, mm-hmm. they had a little bit of a basis there, right? That we don't know where the bottom is. That was true. But all I knew was I could cash flow the property. I was near a college campus, in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I was buying at a 40% discount. And, mm-hmm. you know, that gave me enough assurance. And and number four, I needed a place to live anyway. So sure. even if I rented, there's money being spent, right? So it's like, why not take a chance on this, lock in a 30-year mortgage and, you know, be paying less than rent at that point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, absolutely. Go ahead, Nick. I imagine when you bought your first place in 09, it wasn't like, uh, all right, I bought my first place and it's cash flowing. I'm leaving the oil and gas industry. <laughs> I imagine that you were still uh, still working a, a nine to five uh, job. Um, was that the vision for you though? Like once you bought that first place and made the return when you sold it, that you're like, oh, there's a real potential here where I can get out of my nine to five job or was initially real estate always just kind of going to be the side thing that you were doing? You know, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't have that crystal clear vision. I didn't have defined goals per se. I just knew I like the idea of real estate. I like the idea of cash flow. Let's see where it goes. And I knew how to be frugal and put money towards it. It wasn't until uh, much later, I would say maybe 2014, 2015, that I remember I, I got a, um, I think it was an Excel worksheet. And I, I remember saying, okay, I got all these rentals and I got this house and I got all these assets. This is the first time I really sat down and pinpointed my net worth and you know all these kinds of things. And what if I sold all these properties, these single family homes, and I paid all the tax and I paid the realtor fees and I paid the title company? What am I left with net? And then if I took that net amount and I went into these these more passive investments. How much cash flow could that conservatively generate? It was at that moment that the wheels started turning again in another direction. And I thought, you know, I really don't want to be a professional landlord. I don't want to have 100 single family homes and I'm 45 years old running around just like managing this stuff or even having property management companies do it either. Mm-hmm. 
I just wanted to pursue something more meaningful in my life than oil and gas, which was like zero passion for that. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to, uh, this was my ticket out. You know, it was the first time I'm like, look, if I get serious and I make this transition, I really can leave the job I don't want to do. And I really can pursue whatever it is I want to pursue. And so what I ended up pursuing was a larger platform than what I otherwise could have done or built, which was the Joe Fairless platform under the best ever and Ashcroft Capital. So I could really get access into the industry and I could get on stage and I could get on podcasts. And that's what really amplified it uh, for me. I could have done it all on my own. It just would have taken much more longer and I probably wouldn't have had near the exposure doing it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been an incredible platform for you. One of the things I've heard you talk on in the past here is that you have to look at things different than the masses. And the moment that you started shifting that focus and looking at things different than everybody else, and I think Joe Joe talks about that in his book in some ways of here's here's the people that were successful in the 08 and what they did differently than everybody else. So I'm curious how... Maybe two, maybe two pronged here. One is how do you encourage people to look differently than the masses? But maybe the other part to that is we're in almost like an opposite time now than 08 because currently rates are high and everybody's got an opinion on what real estate is going to do and what you should do with real estate. But I think that, that, um, you looking forward and saying, hey, I'm going to be different than everybody else has really propelled you. So, I mean, how do you encourage people in that? I think, you know, I always encourage self-education through any platform, right? Whether it's podcasts like this or whether it's books or whether it's mentors, whether it's masterminds. I mean, there's a lot of resources that you can do. But to, to your point, look at today in 2023 and you say, you know, interest rates are, are high up and no, and there's all this uncertainty, right? In the beginning of these bank failures and what's going to happen and are we going to go in recession? Are we not? You have to be opportunistic, right? So for example, thinking about commercial real estate, if you could obtain a deal today, you're probably going to get I don't know, let's call it a 20% discount if you're buying a large multifamily deal, if you can secure a good deal. If you could go put six or 7% debt on that property and it still cash flows and you're able to get that type of discount, well, what happens if, not saying it will happen, but if rates taper back down in the future, that could actually create a better, more opportunistic scenario than I've seen since I've been investing in the space when interest rates were three and four up and down. So you you put the 7% loan on, maybe you could you could exit in five years at a four and a half. I don't know, like I don't have a crystal ball, I'm not saying, but if you look at all the analysts and the forward curve projections and you look at all what the, the smartest people in the world are saying, it's projected that rates come down over time, either because we're in a recession, because the national debt's too high, because the Fed hits their 2% target. We don't know what the actual reason's going to be, but it's projected to come down in the future. So so you got to think about, you know, you kind of got to play devil's advocate on this stuff and look at both sides of that coin. Mo- the masses, if we want to talk in generalization right now, are sitting on the sidelines and sitting in money markets. That's what's happening, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's the easy 4% you know, but you might be missing out on IRRs that could exceed 20%, you know, so Hmm. you just always have to be, you know, just like with with the people telling me to rent in 2009, they had a, a, a base case to say that, but I'm looking at it like, well, cash flowing asset, 40% off, I could always get a roommate, I'm in a good market, you know, that market's healthy, you got a very established track record uh, college campus right down the street. So I just had to take a chance. I love that. And that's so different. Even even your statement, you have to look opportunistically instead of worst case scenario is very different than the masses. And so even in that, you're thinking and approaching it very differently. And so I, you know, I, I just, I love that mentality. I love that focus there. So you had talked a little bit earlier about how you were doing some of the fix and flips. You talked about that first deal that you did. What made you shift more into the larger deals and, and go more of the passive route? Okay. Let me, that's a great question. Let me explain it this way. So 
I think of wealth building as kind of a um, an upside down triangle, right? So the smallest being so like the opposite of the the food pyramid, right? So self sufficiency is where all of us really start in a working career, right? That means that you are self-sufficient. You don't have to be dependent on anybody else to supplement you. You are paycheck to paycheck, okay, Mm -hmm. essentially. From there, you go to stability. And stability is where you, this is where like a lot of the gurus come in the space, the Dave Ramsey's, the Susie Ormans. This is like have a job, have a safety blanket, right? Have three to six months of, you know, expenses saved to the side. So you're a little more stable and you're starting to pay off your your bad debt and stuff. Then you reach a level above that's called flexibility. And flexibility is where you have so much of a nest egg or or so much of an excess income that you can be more flexible in your lifestyle. Maybe you want to go take a month and go travel Europe, or you want to take six months off from your job and pivot careers and try something new, spend time with the family. That's great. And then the, the step above that is what I teach, and it's financial independence. And it's where you're really investing And maybe you have an active income, maybe you don't, but the fact is you could live, you're self-sufficient off of just your investments, whether that means passive income and cash flow or whether that means, you know, X amount in a brokerage account and you could sell, you know, 4% a year or whatever, and you could live off that amount. So you got to plug in your own math there, but the fact is you don't need a job. So it's a work optional lifestyle. And then above that level is pretty much the highest tier. It's financial abundance. This is like your Mark Zuckerberg's and your big business owners and uh, Elon Musk's. And, And you have so much money, you could never practically spend it in any meaningful way. So you have to basically give it away. So you see a lot of charity happening among these people, or you have these pledges like Warren Buffett, I'm going to give 99% away to to charity, the Melinda and and, and Bill Gates Foundation or whatever, stuff like that. So those are kind of the the hierarchy levels of, of wealth building. That's a helpful framework there. And I mean... What, uh, certainly for you, the, to Nick's question about making the transition from single family into uh, large. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, uh, that's helpful. I mean, and I can see where you're going, but maybe you want to connect the dots yeah. uh, for us as far as how that's helping you move up that upside down triangle. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I left that part out. So flexibility and financial independence. So it was when I identified that I had financial independence. I didn't even know that I did. Mm. And I would say that's probably true for a lot of people, right? If you don't really run the numbers and think about this stuff and, and you're not tuned in to passive income, cash flow, syndications, real estate, you may not even know that you're financially independent. I can't tell you how many people I've ran into that are hardworking engineers, doctors, dentists, you know, they have millions of dollars in net worth, but they're under the belief, I have to work till I'm 65. Mm. Why? You know? So uh, that's where I kind of connected the dots. And that's that story of pulling out that Excel sheet and, and kind of running the math and saying, well, and here's, here's an easy way for your listeners to think about it. If you had a million dollars, let's say, if you could come up with that in liquidity, you know, you're going to sell all your your assets or whatnot. So if you could have a million dollars and then you could go park that million into some investments that give you like an 8% annualized yield, let's say. Well, that's $80,000 per year. We're not even talking about tax advantages. We're not even talking about equity upside potential. We're just talking about passive income. And it doesn't even have to be real estate. You know, there's ETFs, there's dividend paying stocks, there's ATM machines, there's, you know, car wash, self-storage, mobile home park. There's so many things out there that can cash flow for you. But if you just shift your mind from buy low, sell high, like so many of us were taught, including myself, to passive income, you're going to be buying income streams, diversifying them, expanding them. And over time, I mean, they start kind of funding themselves. It's It's a pretty remarkable thing. Never thought that could happen in a relatively short time frame, but it really can. And that's why I encourage people to tune into these types of messages and get as many resources as you can on what passive income is, what cash flow is, the the, the power of real estate, stuff like that. Yeah, that, the mindset shift from the, the classic buy low, sell high um, to buying 
cash flowing assets. That's a helpful, good thing to highlight. Um, in terms of when you're purchasing assets, I mean, are you only exclusively buying stuff that you plan to hold forever because it's cash flowing, or are there still things that you're buying um, with the intention to to sell it a few years later because you see opportunity for rapid appreciation? What's uh, how do you kind of balance those things? It's a great question, and I'll share the story of why I decided to invest in these syndications and why I decided groups like Ashcroft and many others that I invest with, why value-add real estate. And it's because I fell into this on my own, not really knowing what I was doing with single-family homes, but I would buy a home, sometimes off-market, sometimes distressed, definitely a fixer-upper, every single time. It was an older fixer-upper property. I've never bought new development. I've never had a custom home made or anything like that. So I would buy it below market value, fix it up and rent it in the meantime, right? Cash flow it, not just a traditional flip, like a three-month turnaround. I would usually go more than one year for tax purposes. And then when it's at its highest and best potential, and everything's been fixed and everything's working and everything looks great, I sell it at that point. And this is what I call the velocity of capital. You invest in something value add, you you renovate it, you get it to its highest and best potential, you sell it and you reinvest the capital into another deal with the same type of business plan. And the reason I point that out, I am in some deals that are syndications where I'm a limited partner that I did about eight years ago. We got in... And the cash flow was, let's call it 8% in year number one. Well, every year it's gone up about 1%. So today I'm getting about a 16% yield on that investment. And that sounds great. Who doesn't like a 16% yield? (laughs) But, But if you look at the syndications I've done where we got in, fixed it up, and three years later we sold it, and I reinvested again, and we fixed it up, and three years later I sold it, now, this would almost be the, the third cycle of that. I've averaged over a 20% IRR return. So 20% average versus 16 just now this year and then mm-hmm. less every year leading up to it. So it's personal preference. It's pros and cons. But that has been the most efficient way to grow my capital. That first deal I shared with you in Fort Collins, that $95,000 purchase, today on Zillow is uh, estimated about $250,000. So my first reaction to learning that was, I should have held onto that property, right? I bought it for 95, now it's 250, what an incredible return. Well, what I did instead was use the velocity of capital that became many millions. So, you know, it's a powerful thing when you look at, yeah, I remember as a kid, the compounding charts. I was always fascinated how it takes a long time for that snowball to get going, man. But once it does, you get that hockey stick curve. And it's just crazy how compounding works. So I would encourage everyone to uh, to think about that. And I did a podcast called The uh, Velocity of Capital on Passive Investor Tips under Best Ever, if anyone wants to check that out in more detail. I'll definitely include a link to that because that's a fantastic concept. And I love the way that you uh, break that down as far as the the value you found in value add uh, properties. And uh, that's hearing about the kind of average uh, IRR of 20% uh, or so on, on those deals compared to waiting on the um, some of the longer uh, syndication deals that you've been part of. I mean, that's certainly attractive um, to to do the the more f- uh, fix and flip, even on large multifamily. Yeah, the IRR. I ran the IRR on that single family home example, going from ninety five k to two fifty. That was over about a fifteen year period, so that's about a twelve percent IRR. So you know, I've I've nearly done at, at least double that amount through other deals, but. Anyway, it's just, again, this is like thinking unlike the masses, right? I'm sure a lot of people think I'm just going to buy these homes, let my tenants pay them off over 30 years. And when I retire at 60, whatever, I'll have some paid off houses, you know? And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Like it it, it can work, um, but it it may not be the best potential uh, use of your capital. Well, and I I think one thing in that I've heard you speak on is, again, with this theme of thinking differently than the masses, you know, you, a lot of times we, we see the gurus online or we follow people who, 
you know, sell you on becoming a multi multi-millionaire and things like that. But one way that you've had a, a different mindset, it seems like is, hey, find pain points in your life that cause you the most issues or the things that most discomforts and look for your early deals to alleviate those pain points. And I think I see you shaking your head. So you know what I'm, I'm talking about here. D- dive in a little bit more into that. And I think, again, it's just a reframing our mindset of real estate isn't only about becoming some big millionaire guru and just sitting on the beach, but ultimately it's a tool and it's it's something to help you grow and to have a better life. So talk a little bit more about that. You know, this concept goes back to, I mean, ancient Rome. You know, we're talking 2,000 plus years ago. The, the the basic concept that people will do more to avoid pain than they'll do to gain pleasure. So we all have pain points, you know, whether significant, whether minor. And so the tragedy of this, I'm going to fund my 401k, my IRA, I'm going to stay broke, and when I'm 65, I'll take a peek and hopefully I'm good, is you're going to be sacrificing a lot over the decades, right? You're going to have these pain points that you really can't mitigate per se because you're locked into the golden handcuffs with your job and you can't touch you know, the golden goose <laughs> until mm-hmm. your 60s. So I'm, I'm, I'm of this belief that I did away with all those um, accounts years ago. And so I just went into individual LLCs, just started investing individually because you can start to access your capital instantly. So to your point, I wanted to run some math. That's why I was shaking my head. So if you had you know, $50,000 and you're getting 8% a year, that's 4,000 a year divided by 12, that's 333 a month. So let's talk about some practical stuff here. If you got started with just 50K, that's your total investment, and you wanted to start alleviating pain points. Well, maybe you've got kids. I've got a son. He's a mess. He's always wrecking the house. And maybe you don't enjoy cleaning the house all the time. Well, you could get a house cleaner to come in twice a month and, and turn over your home, you know, for that using that passive income to pay for it. You don't like mowing the yard. Hire a landscaping company, right? 300 bucks a month, done. No more yard work. You're stressed at work and Friday rolls around and it's always a pain point for you to unwind through the weekend. Get a massage a couple times a month, you know, two or three times. Use that 50K passive income to offset that. So that's one approach you can take. Um, you know, you, there's the other approach of I'm going to start investing and not touch the, the the capital and just keep reinvesting and compounding and stuff. You can do that too. But I would encourage you to look at your pain points. So kind of your, your pains and pleasures. Your pleasures are what you're trying to achieve, what your goals and ambitions are. And your pains are obviously your pain points. You know, what, what do you not like? What would you like to change about your lifestyle? And this is called lifestyle design from a high mm. level. And so you can use passive income to optimize your lifestyle. You know, whether it's taking more vacations, whether it's doing more for family, whether it's, you know, more charity work, it, it can be done. So um, that's kind of the backstory to, uh, to pain points. Mm. Yeah, the lifestyle design is is huge, and that does feel like a relatively new concept. Um, I think about my parents and certainly my grandparents' generation, and the idea of like lifestyle design. It was not on the the radar for them at all. And like right. you were saying, as you've interacted with lots of different um, doctors and high net worth individuals that uh, just have this mindset that it's like I just got to keep grinding until I'm sixty five because that's that's how the script goes. Um, I think lifestyle design pushes against that in helpful ways. I think it also starts to uncover your why for what motivates you in life. And I'm curious how real estate investing has clarified for you, like what, what your why is, or in as much as you're willing to share as you've gone through the process of lifestyle design, what that process has looked like for you and how you've optimized your life according to your values and what you want. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it all gets back to the pyramid that we discussed of, you know, the different wealth levels. When I was in self-sufficiency and, you know, I was there for many years, I was truly paycheck to paycheck. Before oil and gas, I mean, I was making like 20000 a year, gross income, all sources included. So, 
not an easy life. And, uh, you know, it, it's like uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like I was down there in like the food and shelter section. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't get to, you know, your, uh, I forget what the top pyramid is, self-actualization, I think, you know, this is yeah. where like, you know, what's the meaning of life and what's my purpose here? And like, that is not where your head is if you're right. paycheck to paycheck, make a minimum wage. So you've got to kind of build up to at least probably the flexibility stage where you can begin to think about this kind of stuff. And I've done so many exercises with my wife on what our core values are, what brings us the most happiness. About once a year, we do a top 10 list independently, and then we share with one another, what are the top 10 things that bring us the most happiness and fulfillment? You might be surprised. Obviously, everyone's going to have a different response here. You might be surprised at how inexpensive some of those things are. In fact, almost all of my list is inexpensive. You know, I don't value the, you know, oh, going to Walt Disney World and spending $10,000 on a vacation. I value like going on a walk in our neighborhood, going on a bike ride, you know, playing with our son and throwing rocks in the water, uh, relaxing on a Sunday, um, you know, going to the driving range. I mean, this stuff could be menial amounts of money, sometimes free, you know. And so it's about bringing more of that into your life. And then doing away with your pain points. Like I said, maybe you hate Mm -hmm. mowing the yard. Cool. Hire it out. You know, you don't have to do that, but you can use passive income to make it better. So right now, to your point, Nick, there's a divergence between kind of the old school mentality of that, you know, 65 plus, and it's even expanding further out. You know, it might be the new norm to work till you're 70 or 75. Then you've got kind of the gig economy. And people, you know, millennials and minimalism and like, hey, uh, the fire movement, I'm going to save up a bunch of money and retire early, stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's an interesting time that we're in. But I think it's it's good to do a little self-reflection and see what really what, what it is you really value at the end of the day. Try to bring more of that into your life. Yeah. Well, maybe we can get really uh, practical just thinking about listeners that uh, maybe they are, uh, they're working a W-2 job, they're trying to get a side hustle going, doing the the gig economy of uh, Uber Eats or, or something like that. And they're, they're just trying to figure out, okay, how do I move up the, the hierarchy of needs? How do I uh, start to create more financial independence, move to that flexibility sphere? Um Knowing what you know, seeing what you're seeing in the the market today, what kind of advice would you give to people that are starting out? Would you still recommend that uh, that they look into real estate opportunities, um, that they house hack? Do you think that there's other assets, uh, whether purchasing a, a business or investing in the stock market, that they should do first before getting into real estate? What's kind of your strategy that you'd recommend? It's a good question. I'm happy to share kind of the the four steps that I still find relevant today to how I actually achieved uh, financial independence. And I'll share that with you. But I want to start by just saying again, this is why self-education is so important mm-hmm. because you've you really do have to be opportunistic as an investor. Okay. For example, you know, should you get into the stock market or should you not? Well, it depends, right? Is Mm -hmm. the stock market being three times overvalued based on fundamentals or did it just crash 50% and now's a good discount, you know, time to kind of buy the dip? That depends. So you have to kind of be you don't have to be an expert in this stuff. You just have to be tuned in to what's going on from a macro level, you know? Um, you know, two years ago, should you put your money in the bank at 0.001%? Well, today, maybe you get four or 5%, right? Things change. Back in the 70s, 80s, the bank would pay you 10% on your money. So this is why you have to be opportunistic. And I always say, as much as I love multifamily and value add and syndications, if we zoom out 10 years from today, and the cash flow is one or 2%, but a US Treasury bond pays me seven, I'm going to be a U.S. Treasury bond investor. (laughs) You know what I mean? You have to be able to pivot. Like it has to make logical sense. And how do you know if it makes logical sense? Well, you have to be educated. So you have to self-educate. So with that, that being number one, these were my four steps to financial independence that are still true today for anybody getting started. Number one is 
Earn as much income as you can earn actively using your highest and best earning potential. So to your point, someone's got maybe a career and a side gig or a side hustle. Here's the caveat. You only have to do this for a period of time, not your whole life, okay? So let's call it, I don't know, five, 10 years. It depends on what your goals are. Number two, you have to be able to live on as little of that income as possible, again, for a period of time, not your whole life. Okay, so this is where you could have a roommate. This is where you could house hack. You know, this is how you could you could practice frugality. This is where that could really pay off and benefit you. But for a period of time, number three is you have to become an investor. Okay, you can't just go put the money under the mattress like your your grandparents. Okay, (laughs) like you've got to go invest. And I don't care if you do buy low, sell high or you do passive income and cash flow. You do you. Depends on your goals, but you got to invest. Number four is avoid bad debt. And the way I define bad debt is if I could otherwise invest my money in something and I would get a higher yield, then it's bad debt. So I'll give you an example. A credit card with 20% interest where I could otherwise just only receive an 8% cash flow with my money, that would be bad debt. I would want to pay off that credit card at 20% before I made an 8% investment right? And then the opposite is true. So that's number four is just avoid bad debt, higher interest rates than you could otherwise achieve by investing. If you're fortunate to have really low debt, like, you know, we locked in a a home mortgage rate here at like 2.75, I wouldn't pay it off. I'm not going to pay it off, right? Because I could, I just make 5%, put my money in the bank. Why would I pay off (laughs) 2.75%? So, you know, that's how you kind of have to look at it. So those are the four Highest and best earning potential, live on as little as possible. You have to become an investor and avoid or eliminate bad debt. And that took me in the market cycle that I started in about six to seven years, and I went very aggressively with it. So just keep that all in mind. Market shift, and maybe today it would take me 10 years to do it or something like that, and you don't have to go as aggressive as I went. But just to give some framework to it when I say, this doesn't have to be a forever thing. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. No, I, I, I love those practical steps and just giving folks something to work towards in the trajectory. I'm curious. I always love asking this question to our guests. You, you learn along the bumps and the bruises, <clears throat> but I'm curious for you, you know, in looking back and maybe thinking about our audience just getting started, is there anything along that journey, that seven and a half year journey, maybe you wish you would have done more of, less of, differently, and just some lessons they can learn from maybe some of the bumps for you. Yeah, a great um, great advice from a mentor of mine was double down on what's working. And I really did take that advice. And it came at the perfect time where I was starting to launch all these small businesses after high school and throughout college and two years after college, and all of them were failing. I mean, I had audio mastering companies and, and audio rental companies, and um, I had a t-shirt company. I had all these things, and they were all failing. Well, this is where I'd just begun getting into real estate, and you know, I was getting that check you know, for 600 bucks a month from a roommate, and I thought, you know what? That's working. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was like, how do I amplify that you know, times 100? And so yeah. that was great, great advice. And... Um, There's definitely, I mean, everyone's got roadblocks. I would say one of the biggest ones was to uh, properly diversify. So when I started getting into the syndication stuff, I started expanding a little too quickly in, in the world of private equity. And I was in this group and they presented this private equity deal that was non real estate. And it was like this really kind of complex thing I didn't quite understand, but they're like, bottom line is, 20% 20% of your cash flow for five to seven years. And I'm like, all right, that sounds pretty damn good. So I went super heavy on it. You know, I put like 175 grand in it and it ended up being partially a Ponzi scheme. So I mm. lost uh, over half of my money in that deal. And, you know, it just taught me again, I, I divvied away from that advice of double down on what's working. I didn't know that that would work. I had no, no, they had no track record to say this would work. So I should have just diversified into more real estate deals, basically. So I, I, I'm, I'm cool with like branching out and trying new things. I think everyone should do that to an extent, but, but lessen that. You'll hear different gurus talk about different percentages. Maybe 10% of your investments can be you know, speculative or gambling or whatever. Um, I don't know what percentage to assign to it, but just don't, don't do what I did and go 
three times as heavy in a deal because you know you're uh, impressed by these projected returns, which are never a promise or guarantee. Yep. Mm. No, I think that's super practical advice. And and again, just you know, education has been a huge thing in what you've continued to say, and that's a piv- a pivotal piece to really, I think, in the linchpin to all of these things. Maybe another question or two before we transition to our last gold nugget round. You know, we talk a lot, and one of the reasons we wanted you on this show is that abundance versus scarcity mindset. And one of the things we talk about is so many people are convinced there's only one pie, and you got to get as big a piece of the pie as possible. And we say, hey, just make more pies. And you've really made that a part of your DNA in that you've achieved achieved the financial freedom, the flexibility that you want to, but yet you're you're still on stage, you're still doing conferences, you're still doing webinars. What, you know, what are some examples of generosity and, and what are some ways that or maybe some reasons that keep you going in this instead of just kind of sailing off into the distance? <laughs> It's a good question, Nick. I think that especially when we're younger, however you want to define younger, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, um, a lot of people don't necessarily want to retire in the old school sense. You know, I'm going to go to this 55 plus community. I'm going to play rounds of golf. I'm going to, you know, watch TV or whatever. You still want to be active. Right. But it doesn't have to be the 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 greedy pursuits, you know, like I'm going to be active to try to make, you know, more millions of dollars, you know, (laughs) it could just be active by volunteering or by giving back and stuff like that. So for me, it's simply a numbers game. I get out there and let's say I connect with 100 people. There's going to be two, three, maybe four that really their life changed because of something I said or a direction I pointed them in or a person I introduced them to or a book that I said, hey, you know, I sent them or whatever. Um, that's what it's all about for me. You know, it's just, it's like fishing. Like you're not going to catch every single fish, but if you just stick it out and and you play the game, like you're bound to get a fish, you know? And that's what makes it worthwhile in the end is when you look back, you're like, yeah, it took like two hours, but I got a result, you know? And so for me, that, that's it. It's just, you know, even changing one person's life is, is worth it. You know, it's relatively not that much work for me because I enjoy doing it. And so I'm grateful for that. So for others, um, you know, th- there's a guy in my network, um, uh, Pete Aiden. Some people know him by Mr. Money Mustache. He's a big fire movement advocate. And yeah. we used to live pretty close to him out in Colorado when we were in Denver and Commerce City. Anyway, uh, this guy retired you know, at 30 or something doing the whole index fund thing and live very, you know, frugally and stuff. And, and he just, he continues doing a blog and he continues doing podcasts and he just continues, you know, helping people and helping different, you know, creative, uh, ventures. You know, he's got like a co-work space out there in Longmont and stuff like that. And it's a beautiful thing. But the funny thing about Pete is you, you can't make him do anything. (laughs) because he knows he has complete control over his time and time Mm. freedom, right? You can't persuade the guy, you know, it's like he does what he wants to do on his terms. He's a great guy, but I mean, that's a beautiful place to be in life. Yeah. No, I, uh, I followed his, uh, his blog and engaged in the the forums. And it is funny because I think that he has so many opportunities with the community that he's built to monetize the heck out of that online platform that he yeah. has yeah. and you can just tell uh, well I think he's addressed it explicitly in his blog posts about how yeah. that's that's not what he values he wants the the freedom of of time and wants the just enjoys being able to give back and I love that that's uh, your heart too that um, in doing things like sharing your time with us and being able to share um, your both experience and uh, some of these really valuable uh, pieces of advice, um, you really do have the potential to change the trajectory of someone's life. And that's amazingly rewarding. So I love that you're doing that. Um, and yeah, grateful for all the content that you're, you're creating. Um, 
I wanted, before we transition into kind of that last round of lightning questions, I did want to give some airtime to um, Ashcroft Capital and um, the real estate uh, syndication deals that you're doing there. Um, what do you see as the advantages uh, for folks to to partner with, with you guys and with the Ashcroft uh, group? Yeah, good question. So what we've been doing for years now is we launch one fund per year. We target about three to six properties. These are multifamily, large commercial properties, 200 to 600 units in size in the Sunbelt markets. And they do a value-add strategy like we talked about earlier in the show. Buy something off market, below market rents, they fix it up, they make it better, and they sell usually to institutional capital, you know. So it's just a way to be in the real estate game without having to be a landlord, and you can utilize the velocity of capital. So uh, that's them in a nutshell. Known Joe for years, Joe Fairless. He's a big influencer here in the industry. Uh, he wrote the best ever apartment syndication book. He runs the best ever uh, podcast, which is the the longest daily running podcast, I think, in the world still. And um, yeah, he's one of the general partners there. So it's, uh, you know, they they, uh, they can only work with accredited investors. So if you ever have any questions, you can reach out to me or anyone on the team there. And we're happy to, to discuss that. But we, we do the same thing over and over year after year. I call it boring, but effective. You know, <laughs> it, it kind of gets boring to to talk about like we're doing the exact same thing this year that we did last year. But you know what? It's been working. So Eddie, Eddie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and I love that uh, you're still finding um, deals as a as a group, finding those off market value add opportunities. Because I know for a lot of syndicators, that's become a lot more difficult um, in the last year or so as rates have gone up and as uh, sellers are trying to adjust to the new market. Um, so I'm sure that the the kind of people that you have um, at Ashcroft, the influence that Joe has had through the platform that he's built, um, that probably gets you uh, first looks at a lot of deals that most people would not have access to. A lot of relationship building over the years from sellers, from institutions. That's why we're headquartered in New York City, right? Because you're always meeting with some kind of firm and some group and just yeah. seeing what, what you might get access to, broker relationships. But, you know, even at all that, we've underwritten hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals this year, and we got three. We got three that really penciled out, that made sense, that cash flowed, that meet our objectives to deliver upon to investors. That's pretty rough. <laughs> you know, yeah. 21, we had eight deals in our fund. 22, we had seven. 23, we have three. So mm -hmm. just to give you some perspective, you know, deal flows like 70% down this year. So yeah. it's, a, it's a rough one. It is. But at, at the same time, that's the, the name of the game. And it's, it's good to hear even from the experts that that's just the reality of the markets right now. It is. Yep. Yeah. And you got to think about it through the seller's eyes. You know, I sympathize with them if I was a property owner. Basically, you don't want to sell at a 20% discount unless you have to. It's just like yeah. owning stocks and the market drops 20%. That's not really a great time to sell if you don't have to, you know, right. but sometimes you have to. So yeah. it is what it is. You got to find those sellers. Absolutely. Well, let's transition here, Travis. This has been great. So I'm going to fire out off these four questions to you one at a time that we ask all of our guests. So the first one here is we call the five F's of Abundant Journey. Just pick one for me and pick one of these that you are doing this year working on improving. So we got family, finance, faith, fitness, and future. So pick one of those that you're working on and, and how you're trying to improve this year. I'm going to go with um, with fitness, actually, because, man, <laughs> it's been a long time coming, but I can never stay consistent with that. So I started these 90-day challenges with some friends and family. And what's cool about it, we use an app, and everybody has a different goal. Some people are trying to lose weight. I've got one friend that's trying to gain weight. I'm trying to go to the gym consistently three times per week with at least an hour long session each time, right? Mm. And so what's cool is we can all see each other's progress so we can hold each other accountable. It's finally technology's caught up to, <laughs> you know, what I've wanted to do for so long, which is, nice. you know, holding each other accountable. So that's what I've been up to this year. We're about to wrap up actually here 
in September, our second 90 day challenge. And then I'm sure we'll do another one. So people can change their goals. That's the thing. Yeah. It might be, you know, trying out veganism for 90 days or who knows, you know, it just, you do you. So That's I, lo- cool. I love is there, that. Is there an app you're using in particular for that, that you want to give a shout out to, or is it something that you've just created a, like a group text? We're using the, the health app, uh, under the Apple, uh, you know, just the general, yeah. So you can share back and forth. Now, the caveat is if some goals don't fit into that. So there are apps that will accommodate, but you'll have to pay for them. But if it's just simple, like go to the gym or so many steps per day or so much exercise, like that's a good app to use for free. If you, I guess if you have an iPhone anyway. (laughs) Yeah. No, I get, I got the Apple watch. And so I get the little alerts all the time whenever uh, my wife or my sister-in-law completes a a workout, but I've not really experimented with the, the challenges on there. So that's something that I'll definitely have to look into. Yep. No, that's great. Next one here. What's a quote from a book or mentor that stuck with you along your journey? Oh, so I'm I'm a big Stoic fan, Stoicism. So uh, Marcus Aurelius, everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. It's just that, you know, anybody talking about anything, right, is just going to be sharing their personal experience and the way they see things. And you're always going to have people who disagree with that or say otherwise. And I used to get a little bit angry, I think, <laughs> at like reading something on CNBC that's like the market's going up. And then the, the next article is <laughs> the market's about to crash. And like you, you walk away not knowing anything, you know, but you just have to remember that, you know, this has been my journey and I hope to inspire others and I hope to inspire people to take action and take the next step or to try one thing. Hopefully you can take one or two little nuggets out of here, but your story is going to be different. And, you know, it doesn't mean just because I did it that necessarily you can do it in the same way that I can't necessarily mimic what Elon Musk has done. You know, he's just a human and he did it, but it doesn't mean I can. But um, yeah. So anyway, I, I always like that, that saying. Yeah. Yeah. Any places you'd recommend uh, if, if for folks that want to learn more about stoicism, have there been any books that have been really inspirational to you? Yeah. You know, I think just to give a quick shout out to Ryan Holiday, he's done a great job. He's got a YouTube channel. You can search him. Um, uh, thedailystoic.com, I think is his website. And man, we've ordered tons of books off of there. And I've, I've watched a ton of his content. He's got programs and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. So what he's doing is, you know, the way that the Stoics wrote back when, I mean, we're talking about ancient Rome, we're talking about Latin, we're talking about language that doesn't relate to today's world. He's taking that, that complex jargon, so to speak, and he's putting it into layman's terms in today's world. So he's saying what he meant by this was this, you know, and so it's an easy way to understand stoicism. And, you know, the the whole premise behind stoicism, if you want to simplify it, like in one or two sentences, is just focus on the things that you can control. And if it's something you can't control, then let it go. You know, that's the basic you know, it's not about being hard or strong. You know, a lot of people misconstrue the word stoic, but uh, you can live a lot happier, simpler life. You know, there's been a lot of things I've drawn from from stoicism, like um, you can be uh, twice as rich by desiring half as much. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of a frugality thing. So a lot of things still hold very true today, and it's worth checking out if if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you gave Ryan Holiday a, a shout out. His book, The Obstacle is the Way, was really oh, yeah. helpful to me. And I, uh, I get his Daily Dad uh, newsletter yeah, as well, which is really helpful. So cool. That's good. Next one here. What's a dream or goal that you have that you've not been able to make happen yet? Oh, a dream or goal. You know, I think my wife and I, we want to spend at least – three solid months in a place like Bali, Indonesia, you know, maybe Vietnam. We went for our honeymoon, we went and we backpacked Thailand. And that was a ton of fun. It was super mm-hmm. eye-opening. But man, we just jive with with that culture, you know? And it was just so inspirational to see so many people that that have so little in terms of material possessions, but are probably three to four times happier than your average American in our yeah. perception. And it was just very humbling, 
you know, yeah. it was very eye-opening. So uh, we will do that. I don't know exactly when that will be, but um, that's it. on our list. No, that's good. Cool. That's a good one. We will uh, tell us when you do it. We want to follow along the journey uh, from here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll have to create something fun out of that. Yeah, totally. Well, last one here. So at the end of your life, what do you hope you'll be remembered for? Man, that's rough, man. (laughs) Someone told me I should write my own obituary and I'm like, I'm not doing that. (laughs) That's too deep. Um, Golly, man. I, you know, good husband, good father, you know, uh, an inspiration to others. I was, uh, last year, I was nominated for the Linda's Legacy uh, Industry Impact Award, which is, mm. you know, Linda was just somebody out in the real estate industry helping, kind of like like myself, tr- helping inspire others, thinking differently, thinking outside the box, giving a lot of time away for free. And like I said earlier, it's a numbers game, man. If I just had five people who would, you know, yeah. uh, appreciate that, I think it's it's been worth it. <laughs> yeah. Well... Man, we sure uh, appreciate your time and everything that you have shared here. So thank you uh, for for sitting down with us. Um, thanks for sharing with our listeners. Uh, if people do want to connect with you, follow along, um, learn more about Ashcroft Capital, uh, where uh, I mean, I'm going to link to like the Velocity of Capital podcast um, that you've done. Um, but where are some of the best places for people to to follow along and continue learning from you? Yeah, so you can go to ashcroftcapital.com forward slash Travis, and I've got my calendar on there. And, you know, our conversation could be about anything. This doesn't mean we have to talk Ashcroft, but uh, that's one place to find it. I'm on LinkedIn, Travis Watts, W-A-T-T-S, and my calendar is under the, you know, contact info. I'm on Instagram at Passive Investor Tips and Facebook at Passive Investor Tips and Bigger Pockets if you're on the platform. And, you know, whatever works for you, man, and Travis at AshcroftCapital.com is my email. So reach out and love to connect with you, love to be a mentor or resource, point you in the right direction. And uh, the podcast is called Passive Investor Tips on, on Best Ever. Solid. I will include links to all of those as well in the show notes for any listeners that want to make it super simple and have something to click to find you there. Um, And then listeners, we do encourage you as well to check out AbundantJourney.net. Make sure that you're signed up to receive the newsletter. And if you found anything valuable in this show, which I am sure you have, because I certainly have, please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. That truly is the best way to help others um, benefit from these kind of interviews. But that's all that I've got. Uh, Travis, again, man, thank you so much. Really appreciate you. Thank you both. Thanks, everybody.